expansal is is a hoop. It's a hoop that is used to bind cattle to to keep horses on fence posts. It's a it's a round thing, so that means nothing. The spancel of death. It's a, a hoop made in a magical practice with the with the skin of a corpse. It's it's deep deep dark magic to bind someone to you until death. What I figured out was my uncle was writing about my ancestors in 1777. So he was writing a story about someone from his past and I'm coming into it, reading about his writing. It was just like the time kind of wove together like a Celtic knot. And I have the letters from my uncle to the poet Yeats saying, you said you'd do my play, I really need you to do it. And Yeats just saying, the rising has happened. People are distressed, their souls are weary, their hearts are broken. We cannot put this play in front of people. It's, it's again, kind of Lady Macbeth, kind of Ophelia. This, this woman's gone mad because she's worn this, this hoop of human skin, which she bound her feet to the landlord's feet uh, in the spell for several days. And then she's had to wear it as a belt around her own waist for the rest of her living days. And this has driven her slowly mad, this, this thing that she had to do. Um, and again, all true, this has actually happened. You, this bansel is something my great, great, great grandfather held in his hands. You know, it's not, none of this is untrue, which is so distressing. Welcome to the Spirit Box Podcast, where we explore mysticism, magic, esoterica in the world of the spirits and everything in between. Aoife Anastasia Nali is an artist, performer and theatre producer who for the past few decades has been performing in the West End, London, but, but is currently based in rural Ontario, Canada. Now today we discuss her research into the cursed play The Spansel of Death, penned by her great uncle T.H. Nally, who was an Abbey Theatre playwright and a personal friend of the great poet W.B. Yeats. Now, to make things a little bit more interesting, Aoife is also a psychic medium, seer and trans channel. This notorious play was interrupted by the Easter Rising in 1916 and subsequently abandoned by WB Yeats, eventually giving rise to the belief it was cursed. Now, those of you who are not familiar, say, with Irish history uh, may not be too up to speed with what the Easter Rising was. Essentially, it was an armed rebellion that took place in Dublin, led by uh, Republicans, Irish Republicans, against British rule in Ireland. Now, the aim here was to establish an Irish Republic and really to um, to leave the United Kingdom and uh, sever Ireland from the clutches of the British Empire. Now, technically, it was a complete failure. Um, the, the rebellion was suppressed. Uh, the signatories of the Proclamation of Independence were summarily executed with the exception of Eamon de Valera. But what happened as a result? Well, as Yeats famously declared, a terrible beauty was born. And the execution of the leaders uh, of 1916 really swayed public opinion, who were previously against the rebellion. They, they saw it as a deep, deeply uh, annoying and, uh, uh, and pointless endeavor. But after their execution, it swung public opinion. And that led to a series of events that built up to the War of Independence, um, or the Tan War, as it's also known. I'm sure 
you'll have heard of the infamous Black and Tans, um, the British soldiers that brutalised Ireland. Now, before I deviate any more from the actual podcast and start going down uh, Irish history, I will stop talking about it and let's get back to the point. So what was so notorious about this play? Why was it believed to be cursed? Well, it wasn't helped by the fact that it was named after the Spansel, as it were. The Spansel of Death is named after nothing less than a necromantic spell of the blackest magic and is based on actual events that took place in Bal, County Mayo, Ireland in 1777. So, it also takes a pot with the church. It um, has a witch essentially castigate a priest and wish evil upon him and get away with it. So it's extremely, extremely controversial. Bear in mind, this is over 100 years ago in a very, very uptight and uh, religious Ireland that this play was was um, being put forward. Now, in the Plus Show, we get into Aoife's research with Yeats's actual magical diary that she had the privilege to, to, to look through and read his notes uh, or notes that he received from Maud Gone and what have you. She discusses his Golden Dawn notebook and the notes he has in there. And she talks about her experiences as a trans medium and a channel and having a family history of gifted and magical people. And she calls that the family business, which I think is a lovely way of phrasing it. Now, if you want to hear The Plus Show, then by all means, sign up to the Patreon. You'll get The Plus Show, the show a week early, along with extra content and a host of other benefits. I'm always interested in people's experiences with the other, from the djinn to the fairies and uh, and beyond. And if you have a story to tell, then reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. I'm always interested in the stories that people have to tell. Okay, right, let's get into it. Hello, Ethan Ali. Welcome to the Spirit Box. Lovely to have you here. Oh my goodness! Thank you for having me. Big fan of the show. Been listening for a while now. Wow. <laughs> so, oh, thank it's you. Exciting to be here. Thank you. Well, we we've had to yeah. turn off our cameras because of um, like we've got dodgy connections at, at both ends. Um, but briefly, I, I saw your your background. You're somewhere in in the wilds of Canada, and it looks um looks frankly pretty remarkable. Yeah, I'm on a, a cliffside over Lake Huron, which is a lake big enough to house, well, the whole the whole island of Ireland. Uh, it's a massive lake. And um, I'm on an eroding 150-foot cliff in a little cabin. Um, yeah, uh, self, self-isolating self in the coolest way possible. That sounds amazing. And uh, yeah, just connecting with nature. And mm. it's awesome. You forget, you forget in a good way there's a pandemic because you're alone because you want to be alone, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> Um, yeah, yeah that, it's marvelous. That, you might hear birds, you might hear chainsaws and trees. Sounds, sounds <laughs> incredible. That sounds yeah. incredible. Um, so we we exchanged a few messages, I think, um, in the summer of last year, and um, you're you're uh, uh, an associate of of uh, Elise Sursa who's been on the show a couple of times, who introduced us, and and. I mean, when Elise first spoke to me about you, she's like, you, you, you've got to, um, you got to, you listen to my, my friend. She's got this incredible story. Uh, and, um, you know, 
told me a little bit about this the spansel of death and, and kind of some of the, the discoveries that you made while um uh do, do, i guess doing all your work on on, on the play i mean i i sh- before i start to garble the actual story um i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> hand over to you to kind of a i guess explain what the spansel of death is and kind of your relationship oh, yes. to it and and, and and some of the things that have unfolded so i'm gonna hand over to you yeah okay well it's for me it's a story i've grown up with since the minute i was born and fact is sort of secondary to the the strength of the mythology so uh i I never claim to be accurate but i I will i will spin you a good yarn about this (laughs) basically the the family mythology was that uh i had a great great uncle named thomas hussein nally th nally uh who was a playwright for the abbey theater back in uh, around 1916, that era. And uh, according to family lore, uh, he he was meant to premiere a play the day the uprising began. So in, in the way they tell it, he had the keys, the play was canceled, the actors left the stage, he turned the key and the British guns shelled the theater, everything melted and he was the last to leave safely with his life, you know, and the play was abandoned and considered cursed forever. You know, that's that's the sort of lore it was told in. I now know that, you know, the Abbey was never shelled, a few bullet holes here and there. He never had the keys, but he was a playwright. Um, so I prefer the mythological, you know, this great figure that strode out of the theater just in time. Um, but, but it would be, the, I think- The play itself, uh it'd be remiss of him not to have a sense of drama of course of course being a playwright <laughs> um so i did i have no idea who this man was uh you know with very few pictures of him uh even the abbey theater doesn't didn't know much about him uh and i the story kind of lived in the back of my mind growing up you know and i ended up i've been on stage now since i was six years old uh, going from play to play, from musical, you know, became my profession, and I began to be a playwright myself. And that that figure was always in the background um, as a as a as a distant story. Uh, when my my own play that I completed in two thousand nine was interrupted by tragedy, I went in search of my uncle. I just had to like get out of my own life and find him. So I ended up in 2016 at the 100th uh, anniversary commemorations of of the rising and uh, ended up walking straight up to the Abbey Theater. And uh, and they they had a whole group of people there on the Easter Monday morning. And they said, I'm so sorry, you can't come in. Uh, This is for descendants only. And I pointed to the Spansel of Death poster, which hung in the Abbey Theatre lobby for decades upon decades. And they went, I am, I'm related, T.H. Nally, here's my passport, let me in. (laughs) That's incredible. So that was uh, the the reading. Yeah, and and actually a lovely, uh, one of the academics there to give a speech about the Abbey Rebels, Mm. because I didn't have a ticket and they were kind of still holding me back at the door, adopted me for the day as a family member and and snuck me into the proceedings and the photographs and the cake and, um, and I I became sort of this, this random figure who knew something about this random figure. Mm. And to them, he's an unlucky man, this footnote, this, this person they know nothing about. And, you know, for me, he's this wildly important person. So uh, that began the, the exploration. I mean, you hear this, this phrase, the spansel of death, and 
I'm sure everyone who's hearing this is like, well, what on earth is, is a spancel? <laughs> Why of death? What is this thing? So um, that, that's kind of the first port of call. I mean, a spancel is, is a hoop. It's a hoop that is used to bind cattle to, to keep horses on fence posts. It's a, it's a round thing. So that means nothing. The spancel of death, it's a, a hoop made in a magical practice with the with the skin of a corpse it's it's deep deep dark magic to bind someone to you until death so that was my first discovery <laughs> going into this not knowing anything about the play that was abandoned or my uncle or that me having started my magical path had an uncle who was that much farther down um i uh yeah so i i got kind of thrown into this adventure uh you know deep dive feet first uh, suddenly in it in these commemoration celebrations and I was taken on a, a merry ride through Dublin that weekend and um, was helped by the Abbey and the archivists there who were like when I when I asked why isn't my uncle on the plaque he clearly was had revolutionary uh, leanings he was writing subversive theater like I knew I knew in my, in my heart that he was a rebel on the side of good you know I knew this but they said they couldn't put his name on the plaque until they had proof of his revolutionary, you know, his activities. They didn't know when he died, who he was, why he wrote what he wrote. And so they sent me into the archives um, almost right away. And they said, I think, I think there's a, a script of this piece in there. And if you can prove you're a, an ancestor, they'll let you have a look at it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and the, what was great is the reason there is a script in that archive is one of the actors, all of which were rebels and uh, a whole nother story, fa fabulous actresses and brave men who um, who were hiding guns beneath their dressing room tables in the theater. And the reason there's a script left is one of them came back, gave his script to the company manager, signed out so that he could grab his gun. <laughs> like, no way. Thank you for that. Wow. Thank you. I know, I know. So I got to go into the archives uh, that weekend and um, I know at the Abbey they have the program they have the poster and it was twinned with uh, Kathleen Nihulahan they were going to do a two act you know a two a double header that night on the April the 25th and um, of course it was abandoned so I went into this archive to find the script again not knowing the subject matter Spansel of Death this dark scary thing what was my good Edwardian uncle writing about. And um, yeah, so I got my white gloves on, this onions, onion skin script, very thin, a lot of markings on it. It's yellowed, it's not, it's not in great shape. Um, and I just started reading it, you know, as you can in, in this beautiful quiet archive overlooking the Kildare Club, which is ironically where the Abbey Theatre was formed. I didn't know, but that's where, you know, Yates and Lady Gregory would be having their big tea and discussion. And I'm looking out that window over the script and uh i was just I, it was it was unfolding before me this incredible story of of my what i figured out was my uncle was writing about my ancestors in 1777 so he was writing a story about someone from his past and i'm coming into it reading about his writing it was just like the time kind of wove together like a Celtic knot like there were these three weird timelines in the opening of the script 
And the first line on the first page and the thing that, that I think is the most important thing with this script is it says based on absolute fact and, and that the energy of that, and I know that the way my uncle thinks now that I've read his diaries, his letters, everything is he was, he was dedicated to the truth and absolutely wanted to bring the reality of those people in 1777 who had to do this desperate magic to overcome the landlords and the oppressors and get that little bit of power back that they could, that this whole script word for word was the best he could do to bring absolute truth to the stage. And the Abbey Theater being like the soul of Ireland in a box, you know, where, where, where the psyche of the nation was figuring itself out, where the cultural revolution was sorting out the soul of the nation. Like it was such a potent place. It wasn't, it wasn't entertainment. It wasn't a passive space for, for uh, you know, to lose two hours of one's, one's life. It was, it was, it was a deep, the deep soul of the people so i'm like oh my god so i start reading this thing it's almost impossible to read because it's written in phonetic um dialect and a lot of gaelic so it's set in county mayo in the small town of baal in 1777 and i'm reading this and, and he forces you to read in the accent he's written it in perfect phonetics so it on the page it's really hard work and it's, it's taken me hours just to work my way through a sentence because I'm coming from Canada, did not grow up in Ireland. I don't have that rhythm in my veins, you know. And I get to these magical moments where these women are just by degrees sinking into deeper and deeper and darker magics and more desperate measures and watching this sort of spider, spider witch weave this web around this landlord and, and the innocent girl. It was just like... And then it hits the the actual necromancy, the really hardcore description of of very black magic. And I dropped the script in the archives. I remember I was like, I thought I would pass out. It was absolutely terrifying. And I thought, how did anyone think they could put this on stage? <laughs> it's like, what? And Sounds he said incredible. that in his footnotes. He's like, you may have to cut. Yeah, it's really intense, very intense and very, it's grand guignol. It's, it's. It could right. be seen as melodrama. I don't see right. it as melodrama. But it's it's it grabs you by the the throat from minute one and kind of drags you through this relentless um, descent into hellish desperation. Mm -hmm. So I thought I was going to pass out in the archive. <laughs> it was very powerful. <laughs> I'm a fainter from way back, so I was like, "Oh my lord, I'm going to take a little breather." <laughs> and I can see why I can see why people I can see why people think it's cursed absolutely and it did have a real the quality around it right it it was it's always had an air around it and i thought my first thought was this is the irish scottish play because i'm coming from theater so i'm yeah. thinking yeah, yeah, the yeah. name of this yeah. play should not be spoken <laughs> you know yeah. I, mean? yeah. I immediately felt the air ripple it, i can only describe it in sensation so it felt very prickly it felt very dangerous if it felt very like alive in the hands and i'm like i don't even know what this would sound like out loud Mm -hmm. but I have to do it <laughs> you know what I mean? and I knew at once it was my my prerogative to get it into the world safely and mm -hmm. um as soon as I could so I took a I was allowed to take a photograph of every page uh well I'm, I'm just looking restore it so I actually we'll come back to this you're, you're saying something more interesting and I'm thinking about 
uh, a different question. I, oh gosh. You, you, I'm saying you, everything in the wrong order. You, you, you carry on, carry on. You were taking photographs of, of the of the manuscript. <laughs> no, well, I just I collected the pages to to revive it. So that's how I got these. There's two there's two surviving scripts now. They've found a second one. So I was allowed um, with my special ancestral allowance to um, take pictures of the the script and uh, transcribe it. So that was another whole thing. I I'm a big wimp with this kind of thing. You know, I'm I'm very sensitive and I could feel it. So it was a really scary process for mm -hmm. me, even to type it out. I really maybe it's just my blood. <laughs> you know, like for, I, yeah, and I was like the genuine struggle with my family was you know it does this play i knew i knew i needed to bring it to the world break the curse but i always in the back of my mind at first it was like maybe it is stopped for a reason maybe this shouldn't live in the world you know what um you know there there was there was a a moral struggle and a an energetic struggle going well am i strong enough to contain this energy because there's a lot there's a lot going on and it has the energy of the uprising in it as well like there's a lot of subversive rebellious um you know, anti-church, pro-woman, like it's yeah. really, there's, there's, there's a serpent in that wood pile. You, it's not, it's not something that should be taken lightly yeah. any, by anyone. And it's, it, it's always failed. So many people did try to have a go at it because it's kind of like infamous, woo, spooky, you know, it's, it's kind of notorious. And um, it's had a few almost readings. I know that the, almost production happened in Boston. They did a partial staging of it, but it it, it absolutely fell apart because I think they played it as a melodrama. They went for high Edwardian teapot, you know, sort of acting, I think. Like it got terrible reviews. It didn't it didn't really hit the air. I know the Abbey Theater's never really taken a crack at it. They did a, a partial reading in the basement in the Peacock and again didn't do the whole thing didn't put it on its feet no one's really had the cojones to, to get it there um and there's been you know my ancestors have tried for years to get it as a radio play as a television show or you know again and again tried to bring it to the air but nobody's been able to get it and i i wonder if it's the archaic quality of the language the dark the dark themes the overt magic like there's at the anti-church at the end you know it's I can see, I can see it would be a struggle. And even Yeats himself, like it was canceled in the rising, but they still had the rights to the play. And I have the letters from my uncle to the poet Yeats saying, you said you'd do my play. I really need you to do it. And Yeats just saying, the rising has happened. People are distressed. Their souls are weary. Their hearts are broken. We cannot put this play in front of people. They need Oscar Wilde. They need, they need levity. They need they need you know respite they, they they can't this play we can't do it we need we need bottoms and seats essentially is what he's saying um and that's understandable i get it this play is challenging even now like even now you can't sit easy in it it's not um yeah it's not for everyone as well but um yeah <laughs> where was i <laughs> I, well, it, I mean it sounds it it sounds remarkable you know uh, and I think, I think when you when you talk about the rhythm and pace of things, particularly with it being written phonetically, like you can't help yeah. but start to 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 speak in that way, you know. Like I mean, like I, I find as well if I read folk tales, like if I'm reading folk tales, 
written by particular authors who happen to write in an Irish way that my accent gets stronger even just after reading them like, like <laughs> uh, you know. yeah um but but so I can imagine that kind of drawing you into place and drawing you into the time through the language you know where and but then that must be magnified tenfold when you're when you're literally have a a an ancestral blood connection taking you right back to the place you know um it, yeah. it's 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 interesting that the play was based in in, in mayo did you say it's bala b-a-double-l-a is it yeah so i should explain my uncle was born and raised there and the nally family like my my ancestors on my father's side have come from there for a long, long time. Mm. And uh, historically, they were the baddies. They were the landlord's thugs, you know, who collected the rents and, yeah. and did some very naughty things for a long time. Uh, so in my uncle's generation, they started turning that around and started fighting the cultural war with Gaelic sport and language. And mm -hmm. really, in one generation, they turned from baddies to goodies. And they actually mm. defied the landlord and um, broke ties and... It was very sudden change. Uh, so, so Bal, even now, there's a family manse. I think it's called Rock, Roxley House. I'm not, it's, I'm not completely sure on the name, but yeah. um, to this day, if you go to Bal and your name is Nally, so I've obviously gone through my research because mm. everything's absolute fact. So you can see the church where the spancel was disposed of. You can go to the landlord's house. You can see where the, the shack may have been, like all of these it's real 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 so I go and my cousin's showing me around and half the people who hear my name consider me revolutionary hero from a, a long line of really good blooded people and the other half have destroyed the house salted the earth uh buried horse heads under the floor curved carved curses in the the lintels of the doors mm -hmm. and now there's a there's an, an edict on the land that no Nally can ever buy that house again and the people who've bought it, you know, have had a terrible time and their cattle have died and their children have left home and they're struggling with this land. Mm -hmm. So it's like to walk into the West Country for me as a having grown up outside to step into that level of superstition and and the, the long oral history and the blood that remembers that long remembering Irish blood, especially mm -hmm. in the Wild West. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and instantly I get. I get activated on that land, right? I'm, I'm just, I'm charged. And, uh, you know, a, a man walks up to me and he goes, I've got your horse. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, you're an alley. I've got your horse. <laughs> thinking, I have no idea. And it was a horse that he traded with one of my ancestors that won a race once that's buried on his land. And he still thinks it's my horse. You know, like yeah. the time, the past and the present are very close there. And I, I found it really really tricky place to visit uh because because there's been a lot of trauma and a lot of famine and a lot of yeah you know i get lost walking across the field because the energy there's so many streams underneath the land and i'm like i feel like i'm walking in circles in the west it's yeah. so powerful it, it, uh, it i mean like the west of ireland like mayo galway uh i'm like Connacht in general and, and again even in, in the southwest as well they're they're really they're you know they're thin yeah. places like the the the, the barrier between oh, yeah. here oh, and yeah. the other is 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 thin you know like um but like yeah. may a lot of people don't really know that much about mayo like mayo is is 
an incredible place um but it's like i mean you know from (laughs) from your travels that like you know it's it's like people tend to go to Galway or they go to Kerry, the Ring of Kerry and that kind of stuff. And, and like the, yeah. there's, there's incredibly beautiful places in Mayo and like things like, um, oh, what do you call it? Like um, Duloc, you know, um, near Delphi. Yeah. Where they had the, the yeah, kind yeah. of the, the yeah. but there's always some story of, or, or direct relationship with some tragedy. There's always something. Um, and generally through the, the suppression of the people by by the the empire uh, at the time, you know. Um, but the famine, and I think that's one thing for the context for our listeners here is is that the the famine decimated County Mayo, absolutely decimated mm-hmm. County Mayo, um, to the point where like yeah. the, the one of the county mottos is like God help us. You know, like, uh, like it was this yeah, right, the yeah. western fringes and the periphery of Europe that was harsh landscape, but the people were under the cosh. Yeah. You know, um, and, and really, um, like those that lineage of like suffering and uh of of rebellion and and so many failed rebellions it goes back it goes it's so long and like there's such a there's such a history of it that it it really doesn't surprise me to to know that like your name and your ancestry was known when you turned up there you know um like i I remember like like when i was growing up like in the 90s there was like a kid in school and like mm-hmm. his like great great grandfather like um like was a turncoat to the to the blackened hands right and and it was still talked about like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah like 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 you know 80 years 90 years okay. later people were like well yeah his his great grandfather yeah. like was a grass to the to the to, to the british and it's like that <laughs> Yeah. I mean, talk about being like completely unfair, but but that's how that's that stuff was relatively common, like in those rural areas. Like the memories are long. People lived there, families there for a hundred years. They're still yeah. their blow-ins, you know. Um it's yeah. well like I used to be a McNally and I can tell you I'm not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, somebody joined the wrong army. And uh, no, but so I have my favorite letter between my uncle and Yates is actually the one where Yates is asking him to change the names of the characters in the play because the activities are so sinister and notorious. He doesn't want to hurt anyone in living times, you know? Because mm-hmm. my, um, my, my uncle's grandfather was the one who found the spansel of death in the chimney breast of this infamous witch. Right. And was the one that brought it to the church to be to be displayed as a as a you know a deterrent to magical use. Mm. And he was the engineer who who you know took down her cottage. And and my uncle saying to Yates, he's going, it's notorious. Everyone, everyone knows this story. All the names are known. Anyone who's left in this line is the last person at 94 is uh will be dead within weeks, you know. And he's saying yeah it's it's too late to hide to hide these notorious facts it's absolutely true and absolutely real and i can see why like someone like lady lady gregory gregory would really appreciate like the reality of the language and the storytelling and how he went well he came from bells so he 
-hmm. had spoken to every person who'd survived this event, even to the fact, and this is hard when you're staging it, that it's overwritten in the fact that he adds too many names. So you know who was the butler, who drove the horse cart, uh, who was fired the week before, and he's giving you the names of the blacksmiths who might have turned the anvil or done done a bit of magic back in Eris. You know, he's giving all these details, pedantically giving details. And the actors are like, do we have to name the butler? And I'm like, for the first production, absolutely, we need to sound everything because he's 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 brought the world to this page. Like he's he's um, secured it in amber and, and let's honor it at least now in this first or second. Uh, outgoing and then and then maybe we can cut out some of that detail and the footnotes and <laughs> he was really he was a natural anthropologist he was a scientist and he was um a great scholar so it was very 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 important to him the accuracy so it's thrilling when you're reading to know to, to the very best of his knowledge that this is all true 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 and it's it, it captures some things at the time like um two of the young men uh, are taking to schnapping women is the phrase and they're they're kidnapping young girls and giving them to rich old merchants and getting the hostage money to live on like and this was a this was apparently a thing that was done and he's capturing that and he's capturing like the desperation of having to steal turnips or what a poacher would do to the man uh, that was caught and he's just collecting all of these that whole, that whole tiny little part of Western Ireland, he's just collecting. Uh, and it's, it's thrilling to know, it's thrilling to know. It's like stepping back in time and anyone who's seen it uh, or people attest that they really, by the time they step out of the theater, they've been in a stone cottage. Like they really do think they're stepping out onto a windy, <laughs> a windy coastline, you know, it's, um, it's, it definitely enters you into the world and and very interesting to work with modern actors and try to get them back there. I always um, have to remind them just just how high the stakes are. Like stealing a sheep is hung, drawn, and quartered, or transported. You know, if anyone overhears you speaking a word against the landlord, you're in Australia. If you're lucky, you know. I have to keep uh, modern actors to know like. When a man abandons a woman at the side of a road, it's not a breakup. It's not she'll find someone else. It's the community will shun her. They won't feed her. Her children will be spat upon. She'll be eating grass at the side of the road until she's gone. Like it's it's hard to work with work with the stakes of that time in with with comfortable, well-fed actors. <laughs> so it's uh, the intensity to build that that to accurately portray that time uh, is fascinating. But I've only, I've only, I have chosen to work with Irish actors. So at least there's an ancestral um, shimmer in that. Like they can, yeah. there is a resonance that comes through. And most, yeah. people, most people will come and have found an ancestor that was, that overcame a landlord, was evicted, was transported, you know. Yeah. So we, we do, we do ancestral work when we do stage it. I have, I've yet to work with a non-Irish actor on the play because it's, yeah. it's so, it's so in that in the psyche and the blood it's i i would i i don't know how else to do it <laughs> yeah i i can understand the rationale with yeah. that you know uh, like it just the, the the sense of like being in this being it's almost in the soil in in that area you know like in this in the stony yeah. soil of, of of mayo like um 
yeah you know, I, I can i can see why that 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 just you made that decision that makes it makes sense you know particularly with with a play like this that that yeah. is kind of looping back through time you know that that it's it's coming to you know guess, some sort of circular uh yeah and that motif is sponsored in itself um to to yeah. to come yeah and just like now you know uh, I, I think yeah we, and looping it would be really interesting if you could give us just kind of uh, a kind of a, an overview of the story. Yes, I should have done that. I feel like I've spoken backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I should have started with the story. Um, yeah, okay. So it starts in 1777, um, close to All Hallows Eve. And um, basically there's Judy... Julian is this cunning woman, if you will, uh, to use an English phrase, who is known to be working dark magics with this old book, this old good book that she inherited from her mother and her mother's mother back in Arrows. And uh, she lives in a small shack with her elder son, who's definitely sheep stealing, woman stealing, turnip stealing, a badden, as it says, and this younger son who's a little more innocent. And uh, her husband was transported for stealing a sheep and sent off. So she's supporting that family on arid land, you know, tr just trying to survive. Now, she was a godmother to Ellen Coolgan, who's a governess at the at the mansion, the big house, Moore, Moore Hall, and for Henry Lynch Bloss. And um, he seduced her and left her with a child, uh, which was Judy Julian's goddaughter. Um, Ellen as well and um, so her need for revenge on him not only did he transport her husband but the the, the death of her her goddaughter and the child that she left behind was just just too much so her revenge is very hot very hot and uh, is her driving force um, so yeah a lot of women come to her for tea readings and card readings and love drafts and spells and uh, she's making a good business round round the back of the shed kind of thing um including the priest's sister is coming to her so she's getting denounced from the pulpit constantly never never set foot in the church and uh you know out is shunned by society but desperately needed <laughs> for her gifts so um the action really starts with a young woman named Sibby Cottle. And again, all of this is true. So these are real people that did these real things. She came to be the new governess at Moore Hall and work for Sir Henry Lynch Bloss. And young, beautiful, naive. Uh, now what Judy claims is that she turns the anvil on the girl. And that spell, which can only be done by the seventh son of a seventh son of a blacksmith that have had to all be blacksmiths, um, when that spell is done, that person has to come to you. So that's what Judy claims in the play. Uh, so Sibby Cottle is drawn to her shed, let's say, and comes for a reading on how she's going to fit in, what the new job is going to be like. She's worried about jealousy from the, the housekeeper and other servants. And, you know, she's just settling in to a new world. And Judy, her revenge beginning, um, the plot unfolding, does a... a a card reading with traditional cards like playing cards and uh, says well there's there's love and fortune for you here there's a fair-haired man that 
that's going to fall desperately in love with you and, and he's got riches and, and wealth and a home and she's saying this landlord this landlord is in love with you and Sibby Cottle is like it's impossible why would you look at me but you know her interest is sparked so Judy uh gives her a, a simple spell with rush lights seven nights seven lights seven a lot of sevens in the play and it's 1777 of course um so the girl you know does a simple love spell and the the end of that first act uh, she she goes off to do that and we find out at the opening of the second act that in fact he has fallen in love with her has taken her on as a mistress in the house and she's had she ends up having five children with him i think she has only two at this point and it's five years later and she comes in dressed in silks and satins and um she comes in in a desperate desperate state in, in the night and meanwhile the sons of judy have been stealing sheep stealing women stealing turnips and are always in danger of getting caught um deported you know transported and so uh, she comes in bearing a letter saying the the sir harry lynch bloss has to get married he has to get married to a legitimate woman with money to pay off the mortgage for this this property he's not a man of his own wealth necessarily or enough to keep the the whole estate going so sibby coddle is desperate desperate that and and the letter says pay her off send her away exile her from the country or abandon her and those bastard children you know get rid of her so uh, there's a plot afoot to get rid of her and she's feeling very, very insecure. Meanwhile, the priest and the bailiff have been at Judy Hooley and saying they're going to evict her um, for reasons of black magic and all sorts. And so she's desperate to stay in the house. So she needs Sibby Coddle to have power over the landlord. And she's puts it in her mind that she has to do this bansel of death. She has to do this incredible act of dark, dark magic to bind him to her forever. Um, as so so this is the this scene is fascinating this uh, this is the spider in the web she's weaving using the desperation of this child and there's so many colors it's so subtle for the time uh it, it's it's reads a lot like lady macbeth you know it's it's she twists and turns her around scares her and then placates her um it's absolutely beautifully done uh and so the spansel of death to make this thing, uh, she's finally convinced Sibby Cottle then reveals to her that she'll have to defile a corpse. So not only will she have to get, well, she won't have to get it herself, but they will have to get a corpse and she will have to do an anti-crucifixion on the corpse and then peel, peel a, a strip of skin from heel to shoulder and back round again. So a perfect hoop five feet round of an unbroken piece of human skin from a fresh corpse uh, and this is the most absolutely terrifying part of the play is the description they don't show the spell which is so much worse they they describe it so the, you see the horror on the girl's face as she's saying what she'll have to do and how to use the knife and how to get the skin just you know under the tip of the knife so it can be peeled back and it's it's horrific it's it's stunningly terrifying when you're watching it um, and the girl, you know, struggles at the end of this rope, but it really is life or death for her. It, you know, this is her children and everything. And finally, she just gives away her immortal soul, essentially to save her life and agrees to do this thing. And, um, and yeah, so the, the deed is done. 
and uh, we don't see that, but we see later, years and years later, the play comes back in. And this is a controversial act because in the original scene, it ended with that, the defiling and the anti-crucifixion. But my uncle had to write the last act, basically to placate the theater and to placate the church and to ha let the priests have their say. So there's this act where Sibby Cottle years later is on her deathbed and the priests and the doctors are it's it's again kind of lady macbeth kind of ophelia this this woman's gone mad because she's worn this this hoop of human skin which she bound her feet to the landlord's feet uh, in the spell for several days and then she's had to wear it as a belt around her own waist for the rest of her living days and this has driven her slowly mad this this thing that she had to do um and again all true this has actually happened you this bansel is something my great 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 grandfather held in his hands you know it's not none of this is untrue which is so distressing <laughs> so the girl um yeah is driven driven mad and we we watch this descent as judy returns to her to watch her die and watch her struggle it's faustian like calling to the gods well god calling to the angels asking for forgiveness and knowing knowing that there's none for her and there's this incredible scene of of madness and despair and distress and uh the priests in this case do not get the last say and they cannot well there's three endings there's one where a priest comforts her and she dies all right there's another where she, where he won't comfort her and she dies horribly horribly and then the one that i stage which is where we don't know either way and judy gets the last word and laughs as as the girl convulses at her feet and she tears the spansel off her and and we don't know why why she wants that back what she's going to do with it next what this instrument of evil is going to lead to and why she puts it in her chimney breast for my great grandfather to find so it's the ending is so shocking it is so sudden and so absolutely horrific and it's very hard on the actresses to play they need a lot of a lot of support to get there and a lot of support after and every time this play has been performed all of twice so far in my productions the audience has sat in silence um without applause for for a good few minutes to the fact that the, the first time the, the the performance where we actually broke the curse um they sat in silence for 20 minutes and i actually had to get up and break the spell in the room i actually had to you know vigorously applaud and i ended up just saying to the crowd i'm like the curse is broken you can go home <laughs> you know because it's such it's such a massive shock to see to see the the dark feminine win and uh and the priest to be decimated and the girl to be absolutely destroyed like that it's it's um not what you expect from an edwardian drama incredible. <laughs> yeah. that's incredible and at the time like i tell people I tell, I tell people at the time, like in theater at that time, women were allegories and they were old women and gorgeous maidens that needed rescue. And they didn't say much or, or they would cry out, come and save me, Ireland. Like they, they weren't living, breathing people that, that had color and definition. And as someone said about James Joyce and Molly Bloom's soliloquy, women uninterrupted were a very rare thing. And in this play, 
these roles for women are enormous. Like the role of Judy Hooley and the witch is humongous. Anyone who plays her, like it's, it's very hard to find an actress who can play all those colors and that subtlety and the push and pull and the revenge and the coldness and the heat. It's like, it's for, you know, to see, I, I, I don't believe there's been a play at that time where women have had that say and to have choice and agency and to see the, the wounds and the desperation and the, yeah, the, the lengths to which women literally have had to go and still are going to in certain parts of the world. And uh, it's, it's breathtaking. I'm totally biased, of course, but I think it's, it's captivating and it just runs like a juggernaut. It, it's, it's, uh, not it's an hour and a half maybe when it really gets on its feet but it's over before you know it and you've gone there with them you're an absolute co-conspirator you're in the cottage you've poached the sheep you've peeled that corpse like it's it's relentless like it's it's exhausting as well like I it, yeah the, re the reactions of people I remember when when we did it at Treadwell's um, April 6th amazingly or April 5th it was two years ago. Um, people stick around. I think the show ended at 10 and people were still hanging around at one o'clock, just needing to talk, you know, just going, I'm sorry, what, what has happened here? <laughs> you know, like, um, it's, it definitely needs discussion and it needs, it needs a lot of support and it needs space to sound. It is a very powerful active ritual theater and, and all, all of the magic within the play knowing my uncle is is accurate from the dumb books from talking to the wise people uh and he was a practitioner of magic himself so i know i know he knew what he was doing and actually what's funny in in the first production in the anti-crucifixion because we we've laid out an imaginary corpse and she's walking around in the in the direction in the north the south and the east and she's laying candles and creating holes in the corpse and um, due to my, I don't know if it was dyspraxia or, or some, some agent of good looking out for us, but I accidentally staged it backwards so that we did a, we sort of undid the magic. We did it in the wrong direction and I had the, the corpse's head in the wrong place and, and <laughs> some magical people in the audience were like, that's the moment the curse broke when you, when you unwound, when you unwound that particular spell, that's when they felt it was released and I'm like, okay, okay, good. Maybe my dyslexia or dyspraxia kind of saved the day on that one. <laughs> or I just knew that it had to be undone. I'm not sure, uh, but it was, it was fascinating. And you know, I've stacked the audiences every time with really strong, magical people, uh, at least definitely standing guard at, at Treadwells, which is already a charged space. But um, yeah. yeah, so they, when they're when they're talking about each spell, each incantation, uh, every word is is the real thing, and and that has to be honored, and remembered. You know, it can't be overlooked or taken for granted. You know. Well, what that's just a what what an incredible story, and 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 just just reflecting on the the subject matter, uh, like how that would have been perceived at the time with specifically the audience it was aimed yeah. at would have been unbelievable yeah like really like it would have been like yeah. you know i think it's for for people listening it like a, 
trying to find a suitable kind of metaphor for it would it be like you know showing it <laughs> like the exorcist to a bunch of of like preschoolers you know um the, in terms of the level yeah. of shock yeah you know because particularly when you're talking about that yeah. kind of um i guess middle upper class uh theater going you know uh dubliners yeah. of the time we had a very romantic view of yeah. of uh of uh, rural Ireland and 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 people who were well essentially poor people right um uh, poor people in the country and would have been romanticized a, a huge amount um this isn't a romantic story yeah this is a brutal story it's horrible you know, you know um well of, in of one of the letters pants. one of the letters yeah and one of the letters um between Yates my uncle and Gregory and and uh, management, they said that this play, this play, which they were mounting at Easter, you can never forget that they have a witch winning an argument with a priest, speaking evil over a priest, absolutely decimating a priest, and an anti-crucifixion on Easter week. Uh, and I, this letter says, uh, either this play will do really, really well, or it really, really won't. And I think this is my personal theory, but I think Yates mm. may have been may have been hoping for riots or some massive reaction. This is a very subversive piece of theater, yeah. let alone the women yeah. getting to speak, but the actions they get away they get away with it, you know. And to put that in front of like Edwardian people, I mean, picture yeah. yourself in the importance of being Incredible. earnest, and then put the exorcist in that. It's just, <laughs> yeah, totally. it's insane. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know they love a good. They love a good riot at the Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's, I'm just putting it in the context of the time. I mean, it, it's, that is full on for the time. <laughs> crazy, right? I mean, it's, it's full on now. I mean, that, that, that is, yeah. that, that's a punchy play now. But like the, the, the sensitivity, yeah, the sensitivities of the time, what it was saying about the church, which was just inassailable, um, you know, to, to, yeah to the Catholic community. Um, and it's mm. interesting in, in, in the time as well, it being kind of 1777, is that when it was based, if I recall correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, and it, was, it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't too long before the, the 1798 rebellion, um, which, uh, okay. which Mayo was a hotbed of that. And in fact, Mayo was declared a republic in 1798 um because the, the french landed in kalala and in, in north mayo and actually would have liberated um uh down they got down as far as castle bar so they would they would have been in bala as well and they were certainly around my neck of the woods oh yeah and the, the whole place was declared yeah a, a what's your neck uh foxford okay, so cool. up o, over near loch con um mm -hmm. but but yeah um that 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 all that all that whole area um you know was <laughs> you know was like on fire with, <laughs> with horror when when um the 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 french arrived to to fight the british um but it's it's incredible to think about that and what what's kind of firing off for memories for me is what the, the main weapon that the people had was a, a weapon that blacksmiths could make which was a pike 
which was a kind of a, a long nine foot pole or 12 foot pole sometimes with a with a spear but with a hook on the spear and the the, the hook was supposedly designed to kind of pull strapping from horses um to to kind of unsaddle somebody um but really they'd kind of be this this big kind of Amazing. column of bristling pikemen approaching the the, the well-drilled army of of, of 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 the british empire and they had some moderate success but like oh these God. things until the likes of 1916 happened which again was another failed rebellion um you know but that kicked yeah. off the, the war of independence and what have you like it, it it's hard to put into context that like literally every generation was at it there was always some rebellion um yeah. but but the easter rising one was the one that really changed the the path of the country you know when so for it to happen well, on i would that say day, so- sorry go ahead yeah like symbolic oh sorry i think we have a delay i'm sorry uh, a symbolic victory but an actual loss yes like it was so it was such a beautiful a terrible beauty beauty right it was yeah. a, a beautiful theatrical ritual death yeah that could not be ignored by the nation like yes the way it was staged the gpo looks like this green temple yeah uh oh my goodness and poets and playwrights and the Abbey actor rebels, I just think extraordinary, extraordinary that the night before there's an actress sleeping on the proclamation, thinking they're a pile of playbills. You know, I love, I love how the actors and the artists were, were in there. It's like incredible. And uh, one of the, one of the cast members of Spansel, I think was the first to shoot and die at Dublin Castle as well. Like these, really, these wow. were warrior artists. It's yeah, it's breathtaking to think that, you know, they put their money where their mouth was and they were reading these plays and oh my gosh it's it's they're just heroes the the commemorations were so overwhelming to visit dublin and be hit by that much ancestral um activation in one weekend really was so profound and to see the what the women did i thought that was astounding because they've been overlooked especially in the uprising for so long and i thought in 2016 they really let the women and children step forward and say they were the runners they were taking care of the men they were the nurses they were the spies like to to finally get their say i think was hugely important not to overlook the contributions of the men but to also balance out that you know no no absolutely absolutely um there's a relative of mine from america was um i i, I think that the this is purely anecdotal now and just a humorous story but um she was i i think if i remember correct something like she was expelled from come on the mom um so like the the kind of the the the, the, the order of women yeah she, the republican uh, kind of uh, sisterhood right she was for being almost like too republican so like she was kind of an out and out oh media. no yeah and um but but wore her like gabardine <laughs> and you and like part uniform well into the 1950s like on a daily basis and, yeah. um, and my, my dad said like you know if there was anybody who had anything remotely to do with um the the rising or or indeed kind of the the, the war of independence she, she she just habitually went to these funerals you know of all these kind of elderly elderly ira yeah. men dying in this 1960s and 50s um but it, like i mean the, nice. i mean it's, it's it's just such an irish story of kind of idiosyncrasy and, and oddness <laughs> um but it just made me laugh um 
but but I'm I'm trying to find out about my uncle's like his his credit as a as a rebellious you know like mm -hmm. to get him on that plaque in the abbey I have to prove mm. his activities um one of the things I'm looking into is at his funeral as you as you say all the top the heads of the Irish Republican army mm. every everyone was at his funeral this quiet man who was almost something mm -hmm. you know the play that was never seen the playwright like the abbey theater were making sketches for his oil portrait right um like they really did think he was going to be a very promising next big thing you know he was up there with with sing i think they were sort of grooming him right to be uh very important to them and this is you know lady gregory and yates made a yeah. great contribution to get to try and get his work seen mm -hmm. yeah. uh he only had one other production that, that got anywhere and that was um which i think you might really enjoy is finn varama okay. which is an irish pantomime about mm about proper she and Faye stories, you know? Yeah, Finvara, yeah. Uh, and he wanted, he thought, yeah. yeah, he thought that Santa Claus was too British and mm -hmm. the children of Ireland deserved their own Christmas entertainment. So he wrote <laughs> really serious fairy lore. Yeah. Like proper, like even, uh, I was just listening to one of your podcasts and it sounded like the opening of his pantomime because he's talking about the angels that fell uh, after the great war in heaven that became mm -hmm. the, the she and the Fae. And I was like, mm -hmm. Oh my God, he's put all this magic into this incredible five-hour pantomime that was critically acclaimed. But again, uh, because of his activities, he was he was ended up being transported to New Zealand for his own protection. Really? Oh, so wow. his career was like, yeah, he was sent away. Letter from De Valera to the people of New Zealand saying he was a national treasure, on par with Singh and one a great yeah. artist, a great playwright that should be protected. So would they look after him and mm -hmm. they made him clerk in the the city hall in wellington <laughs> and he was terribly bored for for the few years he lived there <laughs> but yeah so um, he never got that oil portrait he never got his revolutionary dues you know um so in if if, if people want to follow more about the sponsor of that and more about your work um where's where's where where do yeah. you live on the interwebs um, I'm, I've mostly been hidden, so I'm just figuring out how to be found, but, uh, you, you can join me on drawing strength on, on Facebook and Instagram. I'm e-photography or strength drawing, drawing strength. And, um, if you want to watch the zoom version of the Spencil of death, this, the little bits mm. that we did manage to do, it's on, I called the talk deconstructing Aaron and that's a women's day talk and we'll give you a lot more insight and you can yeah. hear some of the dialogue which will really bring it to life so i would look up deconstruction deconstructing aaron for the irl festival brilliant okay and uh, yeah and just my name you can find me <laughs> wonderful well thank yeah. you very much it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Well, that was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I enjoyed that so much that that really ticked an awful lot of boxes for me. It had history, rebellion, um, these huge characters in Irish history just popping up in in Anifa's family almost casually, and um, 
and of course Magic and uh, my beloved County Mayo. So wonderful, wonderful stuff. That was a that was a glorious, glorious show. Hopefully we'll get Aoife back again. I, I have a feeling there's more to come from this story, uh, and and hopefully we can get Aoife to come back again and tell us a little bit more about her ongoing work in this area and on this subject. Okay, that's it from me. Talk soon and take care.